Hello, and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens. Today's episode is going to look back at one of the smallest and quickest 80s indie distributor flameouts, the Management Company Entertainment Group, or MCEG. That was their fanfare there. If you were an avid moviegoer in the late 80s and you don't remember MCEG, it's okay. They would only release but four movies over the course of 19 months. The story of the management company entertainment group begins with Jonathan D. Crane. Born in Hollywood in 1952, Jonathan Crane graduated from Hollywood High School when he was just 15 years old. He would go on to receive a B.A. from St. John's College when he was only 19 years old with a 4.2 GPA. He would win the prestigious Thomas Watson Fellowship while at St. John's, which allowed him to travel to England, France, and Greece for a year, independently studying civil liberties in European criminal justice systems before he entered the Yale Law School shortly after his 21st birthday. While at Yale, Crane would become the editorial assistant to prominent legal academic Boris Bitker, where he would help write articles such as Losses from the Wash Sales of Stocks and Securities and Entire Chapters in Bitker on Taxes. Shortly after graduating in 1976, Crane would become a junior associate at Ireland Manila, where he would specialize in international motion picture taxation and entertainment law. After several years as a lawyer, the profession was eating up Crane's soul, and he would go into group therapy for famous people, where he would meet Sally Kellerman, the Oscar-nominated actress from Robert Altman's MASH, who would become Mrs. Jonathan Crane in 1980, and the filmmaker Blake Edwards, who would become Crane's mentor as he moved from lawyer to producer. Crane would leave Ireland Manella in 1981 and become the co-founder of Blake Edwards Entertainment. During one of their therapy sessions, Edwards mentioned he was tired of working in the studio system, and Crane pitched the filmmaker an idea to form what would become the first production management company in the film industry. Crane would develop and produce Edwards' movies so the filmmaker could concentrate on the writing and directing. In addition to becoming the CEO of Blake Edwards Entertainment, Crane would quickly become the manager to more than 70 actors and filmmakers, including Sandra Bernhard, Bridget Fonda, Terry Garr, Keith Gordon, Amy Heckerling, Mary Lou Henner, Carol Kane, Sally Kellerman, Howie Mandel, Kelly Preston, and John Travolta. Crane would produce or executive produce seven films for Edwards between 1982 and 1987, but sadly they'd be seven of the worst movies in Edwards's career. A string of crap that included 1982's Trail of the Pink Panther, 1983's Curse of the Pink Panther and The Man Who Loved Women, 1984's Mickey and Maud, 1986's A Fine Mess and That's Life, and 1987's Blind Date. But while Crane was setting up bomb after bomb for Edwards, he was also slowly moving talent and projects from Blake Edwards Entertainment to his own company called Management Company Entertainment. When Edwards found out about this betrayal, 
he would cut all ties with Crane. In 1987, Crane would revise Management Company Entertainment as the Management Company Entertainment Group and take the company public, raising $9.2 million on its IPO. At the time, the 37-year-old would be the youngest CEO of a publicly traded company. Along with loans from private investors, Crane would start off with a war chest of nearly $100 million, most of which would go to the acquisition of a foreign distribution company, Virgin Vision, from British entrepreneur Richard Branson. Crane would also purchase the British distributor Manson Films with hundreds of B-movie titles and Forum Home Video. These acquisitions would give Crane and MCEG a good-sized library of movie titles to hopefully get it through any initial problems. In an interview with Marilyn Beck of the Chicago Tribune in December 1987, Crane would state that he, quote, wanted to set up a company that could finance projects my clients are passionate about. It's one of the best ways to move their careers ahead, unquote. He also stated that while the average studio film cost around $16 million to make at the time, the average MCEG production would be around $3 million. Their first film was easily their best. You know what, Archie? What? Life is sad sometimes. Two more names. Your name is Roland Gubert. Tell me why you're here! For an assignment. Who the hell do they think I am? I'm in charge here now. The entire school is my responsibility. Don't ever forget that. If the sale goes down the drain, you and the vigils go down the drain. One more name. The kid who just left the field. When they wiped out. Kid named Renault. Freshman. His mother just died. Poor kid. That must be hard. You know what he needs? What? Therapy. You can't make your life very bad. Very sad. It's your mother, Jerry. She's proud of you. Put him down for the chocolates. This is more than a sale. It is a crusade. I'm not going to sell the chocolates. The boys have become infected. A terrible disease. Difficult to cure. And you're missing a lot of things, Jerry. We're just asking you to take the chocolates and sell them. We're not asking Archie. We're telling. Jerry! The Chocolate War, directed by Keith Gordon. You probably know Keith Gordon best as Arnie Cunningham in John Carpenter's excellent adaptation of Stephen King's Christine, or maybe as Rodney Dangerfield's son in Back to School. Although he had been acting since 1978's Jaws 2, what Gordon had always wanted to do was direct. While going to school at Sarah Lawrence College in the late 1970s, Gordon would become involved as one of the student collaborators with their teacher, Brian De Palma, on home movies. Unlike how most film schools operated when it came to creating a student thesis film, the aim of De Palma's project was to provide lessons on all aspects of low-budget filmmaking and ultimately demonstrate that a modest picture could be commercially successful. The students would raise $350,000 for the film, including investments from George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, 
and Kirk Douglas, who would also star in the film as a favor to De Palma, his director on the recent The Fury. The movie would be set up as chapters in an instructional living document about the maestro, the filmmaker and self-help coach played by Douglas. Keeping tabs on one of his patients, Dennis Bird, played by Gordon, whom the maestro sees as an extra in his own life and whom the maestro considers to be his most famous and tragic case. The film would be purchased by United Artists Classics and given release in such markets as Atlanta, Boston, Miami, Washington, D.C., and De Palma's home turf of New York City, ostensibly meeting De Palma's stated goal for the film, except for the commercially successful part. The film would only gross $89,134 in total. But, in addition to getting his first leading role, Gordon would also be allowed to direct several scenes of the film under the watchful eye of his professor, and he would also get cast in a major role in De Palma's next film, Dressed to Kill, which, incidentally, was also in theaters at the same time as Home Movies and became a sizable hit. After Home Movies and Dressed to Kill... Gordon would continue to act, and his success as an actor would lead him towards the path of becoming the filmmaker he always wanted to be. After teaming with rising music video director Mark Romanek in creating the 1985 drama Static, Gordon's manager Crane would offer the 27-year-old actor the chance to make a movie as part of the launching of MCEG as a distributor. Gordon had wanted to make The Chocolate War for years, and had even purchased the movie rights himself with some of the money he earned from Dress to Kill, with the intention of playing the leading role of himself. But by 1987, he felt that he would be better off concentrating on being a first-time filmmaker and would start seeking out other actors for the role. Crane offered him complete freedom to make the film the way he wanted as long as he stayed within the prescribed $700,000 budget. Gordon had originally wanted to make the movie in Dallas, but he would begin production in March of 1988 in Bellevue, Washington. Ilan Mitchell-Smith, the young co-star of Weird Science, stars as Jerry Renault, a newly transferred freshman at Trinity, an all-boys Catholic school. Towards the start of the film, Jerry is taken in front of the Vigils, a secret society of students at the school, who assigned Jerry the very unusual task of not participating in the sale of chocolates that helped benefit the school for a period of 10 days. After that 10-day assignment is done, Jerry continues to refuse to sell the chocolates, defying both the school and its cruel, manipulative acting headmaster, Brother Leon, and the Vigils. The Vigils and Brother Leon team up to try and force Jerry to sell the chocolates. Brother Leon needs it because of an action he was not authorized to perform, and the secret society because secret societies can't function if people know they can openly defy them. Wallace Langham, then known as Wally Ward, plays Archie Costello, the assigner of the vigils, whose plan to sabotage Brother Leon's chocolate sale almost tears the entire Trinity hierarchy apart. The exceptional character actor John Glover stars as Brother Leon, and the cast also includes Harold and Maude's Bud Court as Brother Jacques, one of the few good people at Trinity, Jenny Wright as Jerry's friend Lisa, Adam Baldwin as the Vigil's president, John Carter, and Doug Hutchinson as the sadistic and vile Vigil's secretary, Obi Jameson. 
Hutchison and Baldwin would be several years older than the mostly teenage cast. Now, if you've seen the film, you know how important the music Gordon selected for the film plays into what's happening with Jerry and his situation. It's simply one of the best music compilations of the decade, with three songs by the British band Yaz, two from Peter Gabriel, and one each from Joan Armitrading and Kate Bush. What's most amazing about the soundtrack is that Gordon had only a budget of $15,000 for all of the song rights. So how did he get all these, that great music for, pun somewhat intended, a song? He appealed to the artist's better nature. Gordon sent them videotapes of the movie with where their songs would be placed, hoping the marriage of image and music would be powerful enough to cut the filmmaker some breaks. And it worked. Gabriel, who had always been controlling of how his music is used in movies, gave both I Have the Touch and We Do What We're Told to the movie for free in exchange for an end credit message about Amnesty International, the human rights organization which Gabriel frequently collaborated with. One song Gordon really wanted was David Bowie's Heroes, which wasn't quite as ubiquitous in movies and television in 1988 the way it is now to play over the end credits. But Bowie's people wanted $100,000 for the rights. So Gordon would instead get Kate Bush's Running Up That Hill, which, frankly, works much better than Heroes would have in that moment. The movie would open at the AMC Century City 14 and the Edwards Hutton Center Cinemas in Santa Ana, California on November 23, 1988. Sheila Benson of the Los Angeles Times would call the film fascinating, done with style, care, and excellence in every department. David Sterrett of the Kristen Science Monitor would call director Gordon a new and original voice in American cinema. And there'd be positive reviews from American Film Magazine, the Chicago Sun-Times, and the Chicago Reader. Yet, despite all these glowing recommendations, The Chocolate War would gross $14,000 in just its first five days, which is not bad for only playing on two screens, but it would not open much wider in the weeks and months to come. It opened in Boston on January 20th, in the San Francisco Bay Area on January 27th, including the movies 1 and 2 in Santa Cruz, the absolute worst place in the entire Bay Area at that time to see a movie, which is where I saw it for the first time, and in Chicago on February 9th on its way towards a final gross of $303,000. But Crane would still consider the film an unqualified success because he had already sold various foreign and home video rights to the film for $6 million. Gordon would say years later in an interview that the film grossed as much as it did because he would cold call independent theaters across the nation and ask them if they would play his film. Publicity for the film was minuscule, and the film, like many a film in its day, would make most of its money from video cassette and cable television sales. The film would become profitable from those ancillary markets, but it had all the makings of a true indie hit film had it been handled better. I may have been out of high school three years by the time this came out, but Jerry's internal struggle with classmates and authority is something that deeply resonated with me. I was regularly harassed by classmates for being different, and at the time, less well off than them. But the film is so masterfully crafted outside of a couple of unnecessary extra occurrences of 
Jerry's vision of his dead mother, that even though I'm way past those times, and I'm not the person I was at 15 or at 21, the story and the images and the music all still bring me right back to those ages and those insecurities I felt then. How I respond to the movie at 53 is markedly different from how I did three decades earlier, but it still genuinely moves me, and I don't see that changing anytime soon, no matter how much more I change. If you've never seen it, please do yourself a favor. Find a way to watch it. Randall Kleiser, the director of Grease, had fallen in love with the low-budget realistic British dramas of the 1960s while he was studying film at USC. While completing his 1982 film Summer Lovers, he would discover a British novel by Elizabeth Jane Howard called Getting It Right, about a 31-year-old virgin hairdresser who still lived with his parents in London, which Kleiser felt would be his chance to make a film not unlike those he felt shaped him as a filmmaker. It would take him seven years to finally get the chance to make the film, when his friend and producer Rusty Lemerand introduced Kleiser to Crane, who was looking for movies to produce as part of MCEG's first batch of films. A deal was made, and Kleiser would find himself in London on August 8, 1988, making a film with a cast that included Helena Bonham Carter, Peter Cook, and John Gielgud, as well as Shirley Ann Field, Nan Monroe, and Lynn Redgrave, who had starred in movies like Georgie Girl, Morgan, and Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, the low-budget British, British dramas of the 1960s that inspired him. And that start date wasn't an accident. 8-8-88. Kleiser was originally supposed to begin shooting on August 1st, but deliberately waited a week for what he felt was a lucky omen. The movie would open in 22 locations in New York City and 18 in Los Angeles on May 5th, 1989, and it would get good reviews from the likes of Judith Christ of the New York Times, Jeffrey Lyons of Sneak Previews, Rolling Stone's Peter Travers, and Playboy's Bruce Williamson. But the film would only gross $73,000 in its first three days. But unlike The Chocolate War, Crane would stick with the film, which would continue to play throughout the summer and achieve a final gross of $960,000. Before he became the director of such Hollywood blockbusters as The Mummy, The Mummy Returns, and Van Helsing, Stephen Summers made his directing debut with Catch Me If You Can. Obviously not the Tom Hanks-Leonardo DiCaprio movie of the same name, which was made years after The Mummy and was famously directed by Steven Spielberg. No, this Catch Me If You Can was a car racing drama starring Matt Latanzi, still best known as the former Mr. Olivia Newton-John, Lauren Lachlan, and future Oscar-winning producer Grant Heslov. The then 29-year-old Latanzi played a hot-headed, hot-shot high school senior who comes up with a racing scheme to help raise money to keep his school open. Summers was able to secure an $800,000 budget and shot the movie in his hometown of St. Cloud, Minnesota, using a number of his friends and their hot rods, classic cars, and muscle cars for background. It's a silly, stupid movie that grossed only $3,676 when it opened in four theaters somewhere in America in October of 1989. But it would still be a profitable film for MCEG per se, as Crane was able to sell the foreign and video rights for $7 million. 
Eleanor Gaver's Slipping into Darkness was a thriller about three spoiled college girls who are held responsible for the death of a handicapped boy. The only name of note in this production was Michelle Johnson of Blame It to Rio Infamy, but the film never got a theatrical release. MCEG would send it out direct-to-video through their own label in late 1988. And that would be the end of MCEG as a theatrical distribution company. Now, I know I said four movies, and between The Chocolate War, Getting It Right, and Catch Me If You Can, that's only three. I'll get to that fourth one when it's time. So what happened? Well, if you've been a listener of this podcast for a while, you already know the answer. MCEG tried to grow too big, too quickly. By the fall of 1989, they would already be behind on repayments of a $72.5 million loan with their creditors, including their largest, GE Capital, and another $1.4 million in debenture debt interest, most of that from the purchase of Virgin Vision and Manson Films, which was supposed to help keep them afloat during the lean times. It also didn't help that the chief financial officer, the head of marketing, the head of business affairs, and the head of the talent management operations all left shortly after the release of Getting It Right. In the spring of 1990, just as they were preparing to release their fourth film, Crane would leave MCEG himself, which would be forced to shut down and sell its remaining assets, including the film they currently had in theaters. Ironically, while MCEG was going through these issues, they would also see the release of their biggest hit as a production company. Director Amy Heckerling had hit the big time in 1982 with her directorial debut, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And then she hit the skids with her next two films, 1984's Johnny Dangerously and 1985's National Lampoon's European Vacation. It was during the post-production of that latter film where Heckerling would find herself pregnant. Her husband, Bachelor Party director Neil Israel, would playfully talk in a baby voice, pretending what their new human might be thinking or saying at particular moments. This inspired Heckerling to start writing a screenplay about a woman who found herself pregnant with a married man's child and her challenges of becoming a single mother, while the very small child comments on what's happening around him. Heckerling would set up the then-titled Daddy's Home up at TriStar Pictures with an initial budget of $13 million. Kirstie Alley, who had just taken over the lead female role on the hit NBC television series Cheers, was interested in playing the lead role of Molly, and TriStar decided to go after John Travolta for the other lead, a cab driver who becomes a surrogate dad to Molly's baby boy. They approached Crane, Travolta's manager, to see if the once popular actor, who hadn't had a hit movie since 1983 Staying Alive, and hadn't even made a movie since 1985's Perfect, would be interested. The actor would be interested, Crane said, but not at the quote TriStar was offering. However, Crane might be willing to lower Travolta's then $4 million asking price by half if TriStar would let Crane produce the film. With Travolta on board, Crane found ways to lower the budget from $14 million to $8.6 million, in large part by shortening the production schedule and having the movie shot in Vancouver, British Columbia, instead of New York City, where the story is set. Crane and TriStar knew they would need to secure a big name to provide the voice of Mikey the Baby, 
who would internally be commenting on things that are happening around him. Crane would first approach Robin Williams. Williams's team came back with a qualified yes, provided they pay their client $15 million. So Crane next went to Bruce Willis, the star of the ABC hit television series Moonlighting, who had just completed a $28 million action movie for 20th Century Fox called Die Hard that would be opening later next summer. Willis's team asked for $5 million, which was still too much for the shrunken budget, but Crane would counter with an interesting offer. Since Willis would only be providing voiceover work and not be appearing on screen at all, would he be willing to take scale for the voice work and receive a percentage of the film's gross instead? If the film was a hit, Willis's potential pay would be far higher than his original quote. Willis was in. Production would begin on May 25, 1988, and finish on August 8th. There it is again, 8888. The entire production would film in Vancouver, including shots of Mikey as a fetus in the womb that were filmed in vertical tanks with puppets representing the kid in various stages of development. Heckerling would finish post-production on the now-titled Look Who's Talking in February of 1989, and TriStar scheduled a series of test screenings, which would garner an unusually high 95% positive feedback rate. A planned March 1989 release was delayed to October due to heavy expected competition in the late spring and early summer thanks to films like Batman, Dead Poets Society, Field of Dreams, Fletch Lives, Ghostbusters 2, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, K-9, and Star Trek V. The Saturday night and Sunday afternoon before the October 13th release, TriStar would hold nationwide sneak previews of the film at nearly 450 theaters, where again, audience reaction would be through the roof, 92% rating the film excellent or very high. Opening weekend would greet the film with highly mixed reviews from critics, including one from Daily Variety that predicted a short life in theaters. But the film would open in first place with more than $12.1 million in ticket sales from 1,208 theaters. The second week, first place again with $14.1 million from 1,547 theaters. Week three, first place. Weeks four and five, first place. Finally, in week six, would it fall to second place when Paramount released Eddie Murphy's directorial debut, Harlem Nights? but its $8.5 million sixth-week haul would even outgross Disney's first-week release, The Little Mermaid. It wouldn't be until week 10, when Look Who's Talking would fall out of the top 10, but then it'd be right back in the top 10 the following week, and finally fall out of the top 10 in week 14. By early May 1990, the film would still be in theaters, and doing half a million dollars a week from a few hundred screens even though it had already been released on home video. In fact, the film would continue to play in theaters until early December 1990, when it finally finished with $140 million in ticket sales, with an additional $156 million internationally through TriStar's big sister, Columbia Pictures, becoming that company's biggest international release of all time. Willis did end up earning more from his gross profit participation than he would have from his original quote, 
And Hackerlin and husband Neil Israel immediately got to work writing a sequel, Look Who's Talking 2. That film would be released in theaters on December 14, 1990, just one week after the first film finally left theaters. MCEG would receive more than $13 million in profits from the release of Look Who's Talking, but it would not be enough to save the company from bankruptcy. It was around this time that MCEG also started selling off titles to other companies. One of the first to go out the door was John Frankenheimer's The Fourth War, which featured Roy Scheider and Jürgen Prochnow as two commanders on opposite sides of a Germany-Czechoslovakia border area who would carry out their own private war against each other. Canon Films would give this movie a moderate theatrical release in March 1990. Then there was Chud 2, Bud the Chud, which would not involve anyone at all from the original 1984 movie, and it's really not even a sequel to that movie. Instead of an interesting sci-fi horror film, we get a lousy cannibal zombie comedy that should have been better considering the cast that is involved with it, the great Garrett Graham from Phantom of the Paradise and Used Cars, Robert Vaughn from The Man from Uncle, Mr. Roper himself, Norman Fell, Larry Linville from MASH, Trisha Leigh Fisher, and Saturday Night Live's Rich Hall. This was released by Vestron Films' Lightning Films genre label in late 1989. John Boscovich's Without You, I'm Nothing was the big screen adaptation of Sandra Bernhardt's one-woman show. But instead of being filmed in Bernhardt's adopted hometown of New York City, it would be shot inside the Coconut Grove nightclub at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, where six of the Oscar ceremonies were held between 1930 and 1943. Donald Trump, who had purchased the hotel in the late 80s in the hopes of tearing it down to build the tallest building in America, would give the production a discount on the renting of the space, since he was a fan of the actress and comedian, at the time, and the hotel had just closed to guests, so there would be no interruptions in filming. MCEG would actually release the film, which strangely was executive produced by British filmmaker Nicholas Rogue, at the City Cinemas 2 in New York City on May 4, 1990. The reviews for the film were quite good. Siskel and Ebert would give it two thumbs up. Janet Maslin of the New York Times called it ingenious and unsettling. Amy Taubin of The Village Voice proclaimed the film to be essential Bernard. And Rolling Stones' Peter Travers said it was stunning, bold, and incisively funny. But with Cranes leaving and the impending bankruptcy of the company, MCEG would sell the distribution rights to Without You, I'm Nothing to New Line Cinema while it was still playing in New York City. The first playdates under New Line, who would use the same advertising material for the film as MCEG created, with a little New Line logo added at the bottom right corner of the ads, would be at the Cineplex Beverly Center and the Samuel Goldwyn Pavilion Cinemas in Los Angeles on June 13th. After 34 weeks of major city rollouts, the final gross for Without You, I'm Nothing would be just north of $1.2 million. Peter Masterson's Convicts, with a screenplay by Horton Foote based on his play, had Lucas Haas as a Depression-era teen who gets a job on a sugar plantation and learns some valuable life lessons from the convicts he works beside, including Robert Duvall and James Earl Jones. MPI Home Video would release convicts direct-to-video in the summer of 1990. Richard Martini's Limit Up 
was a comedy about an assistant to a commodities trader who sells her soul to the devil to move up in the trading world. Nancy Allen would play the assistant, Dean Stockwell, her smarmy boss, and former SNL star Denitra Vance plays the devil. Rich Hall pops up again in an MCEG production, along with Rance Howard, father of Ron and Clint, and even Ray Charles shows up for a couple of scenes. This one would be direct-to-video through Virgin Video, which was not a part of the Virgin Vision sale and was still, at the time, controlled by Richard Branson. Hemdale would pick up Nicholas Rogue's mystery thriller Cold Heaven. The then-Mrs. Rogue, Teresa Russell, stars as a woman whose faith in God is tested when her husband, played by Mark Harmon, dies and mysteriously comes back to life. The $4.5 million film would go into production weeks before MCEG went belly up, and the filmmakers would have to finish under budget because the money simply ran out. The supporting cast would include Seymour Cassell, Will Patton, James Russo, and Talia Shire. It would open in American theaters on May 29, 1992. The reviews were brutal, and the film would gross just under $100,000. Then there was Breaking the Rules, a coming-of-age dramedy starring Jason Bateman, C. Thomas Howell, Jonathan Silverman, and Annie Potts. Directed by Neil Israel, Bateman plays a cancer-stricken young man whose best friends take him to Los Angeles so he can become a contestant on Jeopardy before he dies. Miramax would give a token theatrical release to the film in October 1992. And then there were three MCEG films that would be purchased out of bankruptcy proceedings by the Showtime Cable Channel, which would start airing in 1992 and 1993, including Boris and Natasha, a live-action version of the cartoon characters, which starred Mrs. Crane, Sally Kellerman, as the voluptuous Russian spy, along with SCTV funny man Dave Thomas as her counterpart. But the filmmakers could not secure the rights to the characters of Rocky or Bullwinkle, although there are two very minor characters called Agent Moose and Agent Squirrel towards the end of the film, and neither Kellerman nor Thomas try to affect their characters' very clearly Russian accents although they do have some vague Slavic-like accents. Crane was able to secure a cameo from John Travolta, playing himself, trying to take Natasha out for a date, but the whole thing is a mess from start to finish. Chains of Gold, a $10 million drama featuring John Travolta as a Miami social worker who goes looking for a fatherless boy, played by Joey Lawrence, that he's been helping. It's got a great supporting cast, Benjamin Bratt, Bernie Casey, Hector Elizondo, Conchata Farrell, and Mary Lou Henner. And Fatal Charm, which ostensibly stars Chris Atkins and Can't Buy Me Love star Amanda Peterson, this thriller also had a supporting cast many films would kill for, including Peggy Lipton, James Remar, and Andrew Robinson. Crane himself, upon leaving MCEG, would start up The Crane Group, another production and management company. Some of his MCEG clients would join him at the Crane Group, most importantly Kelly Preston and John Travolta, but he would pick up a few new clients, including Kim Basinger. But he would lose most of his clients before the end of the decade, with the final blow coming in 2002, when Preston and Travolta would sever ties with their manager of nearly 20 years. After several failures, 
at the box office between 1999 and 2002, including the ill-conceived Battlefield Earth. Crane would become a professor for the UCLA Extension Program, teaching a class on motion picture production and talent management to more than 10,000 students between 2002 and 2016, and it was consistently ranked as one of the best classes offered by the Extension Program. He would also publish a book, A Revolutionary Approach to the Art and Science of Movie Making, a treatise on fixing the accidental industry, in 2005. Crane and Kellerman adopted twins Jack and Hannah in 1989, and they would remain married until his sudden passing on August 1, 2016, in Los Angeles. His daughter Hannah would follow him in passing from an overdose of heroin and methamphetamines less than three months later. At the time of his passing, Crane had just started up yet another new management and production company, this one called The Edge, which was planning to finance, produce, and distribute up to 15 movies a year. In addition to producing or executive producing 46 films between 1982 and 2003, Crane also wrote two films, 1995's The Point of Betrayal, a thriller directed by Limit Up director Richard Martini, and 2010's Father of Invention, a comedy drama starring Kevin Spacey and Heather Graham. Both films would only receive token theatrical releases. Thank you for listening. We'll talk again soon. The Film Jerk Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens. As we are an independent podcast without a network of websites to help promote the show, we rely on word of mouth to get out the word about the show. So please help get the word out. And as always, I look forward to your comments about the show. You can leave me a note on this podcast's page at filmjerk.com, or you can leave me a message on my Twitter feeds at Edward A. Havens or at FilmJerk. The FilmJerk podcast has been a production of Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night.